Tiger Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. Uh, delighted to have you with us in this hour. And in this hour, conversation uh, about Jill Biden. Did First Lady Jill Biden just have another racist moment, as some have described it, or certainly felt it, interpreted it? We will talk about the false equivalency in this hour of First Lady Jill Biden's White House invitation to the runner-up Iowa women's basketball team alongside the national champs, the LSU women's basketball team. The First Lady has since walked back her dual invitation, but the damage uh, was already done. People are still talking about it, uh, as evidenced by this hour. And the cognitive dissonance, it seems to me, um, uh, in her comments, uh, were both revealing and disturbing on a number of levels. I'm pleased to be joined in this hour by our award-winning author, historian, and cultural critic, Dr. Carissa Mitchell, who joins us now to unpack the deeper issues at play here, and perhaps then some. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, good to have you on. How are you today? Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Hey, the honor's all mine. I'm delighted to have you. Glad we've got an hour. A lot to talk about here. Uh, as I said a moment ago, and as you certainly well know, uh, this conversation is not is not abated. Um, there are still people. Uh, just just go to social media everywhere. Uh, as a matter of fact, our, our sports guy, Ray Richardson, was just talking about it in his most recent sports report. Uh, people are still sort of uh, uh, trying to figure out uh, what the first lady meant uh, when she made the comment. Uh, then she walked it back. Um, you have, um, the, the, the young white star, uh, Caitlin, what's her last name? Caitlin from, uh, Clark, Caitlin, Caitlin, Caitlin Clark from Iowa, who has, uh, uh given cover <laughs> to uh, LSU, which really not given them coverage, given herself cover because she had done the same thing a day or so prior, uh, same gesture on the court. Uh, her coach at Iowa uh, has said, uh, we thank the First Lady for the invitation, but we didn't earn a trip to the White House. So uh, we wish uh, LSU all the best and uh, celebrate their win and uh, what should be a great uh, celebration at the White House for them, paraphrasing all that. Uh, but the coaches, uh-huh. felt, the coaches felt the need to re- respond to this, the coach of Iowa. The player, the star player for Iowa, has felt the need to respond to this. Uh, the First Lady's uh, press secretary walked it back. That's a whole lot of drama over one comment. (laughs) So let me just start broad and we'll narrow as we move through the hour. Um, Why has there been so much fallout to your mind, Dr. Mitchell, about this comment? Oh, my goodness. So much to unpack. Yes. I mean, the first thing that I want to say is that, of course, the approach that I bring always is one of, you know, an English professor. Mm Mm-hmm. And to me, what that means is that I not only study literature, but I also study discourses and practices. I'm very interested in how we read the words and deeds that shape our culture, Mm. because whatever is most commonly said and done is what you know is shaping your culture. So sports ends up being a really important performance to watch because it shows us American culture. Yes. It's a spectator sport. Mm -hmm. So the way that people are talking about it reflects themselves more than the players necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. So part of what I found to be really fascinating about this situation is that it demonstrates the fact that Americans, all of us, Americans are taught when we go through U.S. education to identify with protagonists. 
And usually the protagonist that we're identifying with is a cisgender straight white man. So whenever you have a story where it's not circulating around a cisgender straight white man, then there's more um, revealing about what it is that makes you feel like you can be a protagonist in the story. Mm -hmm. So in this situation, you can see how Jill Biden got excited (laughs) about being, you know, the protagonist in this you know, triumphant story. And oh my goodness, she was so close to triumph. And then I don't get the triumph. Surely something has gone wrong. (laughs) Surely there has to be some um, comfort that I can give to this woman, Caitlin Clark, that I feel so much affinity toward there. It can't be ending this way. I mean, straight white men get the victory all the time. This was my time to get the victory. Surely I have to sweep in and save the day. Meanwhile, Caitlin, Caitlin Clark did not ask for all this savior business, mm. even before she came in and said, um, there's nothing to criticize Angel Reese about. Even before she said that, I will tell you that I knew, I suspected that she felt like she can take it as well as she can give it. I was sure that she was given the trash talk to black opponents in the exact same way she would have given the trash talk to white opponents. Mm. But American culture is used to saving white women. And that's what you saw people go in and do and act a fool. Mm. Um, <laughs> so this is, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead and finish. So, so this is what? Finish your thought. So this is? So this is the reason why you saw white men in particular coming out trying to save the white woman in this scenario, right? Because that is what American culture does. American culture insists that white men, straight white men, should be at the top. And part of the point of them being at the top is that they can dictate the place of other people. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that you do that is to show that you are the protector, And so even when white women are not screaming for protection, white men come in to play that role. Now, again, I I need to be clear. My analysis is always based on an analysis of discourses and practices, words and deeds. What is most commonly said and done? What is most commonly said and done in American culture is defending white women, assuming that they are defenseless. And masculinizing black women and assuming that they are extra hostile, even if all they're doing is minding their business or handling their business, obviously they're just masculine, hostile, and aggressive. So I'm suggesting to you that these are just the most commonly said and done things about American culture. So what we watch is American culture unfold way more than we watch something individual between Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese. So, so let, me ask, let me ask you forthrightly and, and directly, um, what are you indicting white males for in this particular uh, controversy? Well, I'm thinking in terms of Keith Olbermann with the saying that sh- that uh, Angel Reese was classless, mm. um, calling her an idiot. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking about those kinds of responses. Right. And I would say to the way that any kind of response to Angel Reese in this scenario that cast her as extra aggressive or extra hostile is an example of what I mean about how American culture is designed 
to masculinize black women pretty much no matter what we do, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one way that you can understand the importance of so many black women athletes having the eyelashes and extra hair, because no matter how much black women signal their femininity, they're still going to be masculinized. That's the American way. Mm. Um, Just uh, so everybody can keep up with us, um, Angel Reese is is an African-American woman, one of the star players for LSU. Uh, who's at the center of this controversy or got, you know, pulled into it. Uh, and Caitlin Clark is the star player for the Iowa team, uh, uh, the, the young white girl, uh, star of their team. So just so you know what the, who these people are and what these names are, if you've not followed this, Caitlin Clark, white girl playing for Iowa, Angel Reese, black girl playing for LSU, LSU wins the national championship. Caitlin Clark had a heck of a run during that tournament. The white girl was getting down. I ain't mad at her. She was getting down. Oh, yeah. Um, but she uh, ends up losing the title game. And everything you've heard uh, Dr. Mitchell lay out moments ago uh, then starts to transpire. So we uh, are now going to continue when we come forward uh, dissecting, uh, now that uh, Dr. Mitchell has laid a beautiful foundation, why did the first lady, who obviously is a white woman, <laughs> step into this? Um, did she know what she was doing? Uh, was it intentional? Uh, was it just being stuck on stupid? Uh, you know, we, we, we've seen this for years. Uh, championship teams go to the White House. I never heard anybody, president, first lady, nobody ever suggested that the loser should be invited to the White House. What was the first lady thinking? Again, uh, there are all kinds of questions about that. Uh, I laughed when I heard Andrew Reese. I guess it was Andrew Reese. One of them said, one of the LSU players said, we'd rather go to Michelle Obama's house. <laughs> we'd rather go to Michelle Obama's house. And Michelle, Michelle didn't invite nobody to her house either. She, she's pulled into it. But they're like, we'd rather go hang out with Michelle Obama than go to, go to the White House with Jill Biden if she's going to invite the losers to join with us as well. Uh, a lot to unpack here. Just getting started with Dr. Caretha Mitchell on KBLA Talk 1580. I guess in this hour is Dr. Caritha Mitchell. We are talking about the uh, the false equivalency, I think it's fair to say, of uh, First Lady Joe Biden's White House invitation to run up Iowa women's basketball team alongside the actual national champs, the LSU women's basketball team. As I said earlier, the First Lady has since walked those comments back, but the damage is done. People are still trying to figure out what the heck just happened here. Uh, and sportscasters, including our own Ray Richardson here uh, at KBLA, are still trying to unpack it uh, even as we even as we speak. So uh, the First Lady sort of stepped into it. And again, I don't, I don't need to color this too much for you, Dr. Mitchell. What did you make, uh, broadly speaking, of her comments? That is uh, to say specifically uh, the dual invitation <laughs> to the White House. Yes, absolutely. Well, I believe she stepped into it for the spectator sport reason I gave earlier about seeing herself in um, that Iowa team and being so crestfallen when they were defeated. Mm -hmm. But the other way that I think it's important to understand this is through a process that I call know your place aggression, Mm. meaning um, American discourses and practices are often designed to where the most commonly said and think, said and done things are always a reminder to members of marginalized groups, especially African-Americans, that they need to know their place. And I call it know your place aggression because I'm interested in us understanding that it is a really wide array of forces that answer the achievements of marginalized groups 
so that their success is going to bring aggression as often as praise. Mm. So it's not as if Joe Biden would take away the victory, but it's just that there's it's hard to resist also reminding you of your proper place, that the people who should have won was this white team. Mm. And so there's just an American urge to be like, well, something has to be. I mean, we all know of all of those examples of when a black student is a valedictorian of a high school, all of a sudden you need joint valedictorians and stuff. (laughs) It's the exact same thing. It's because the American impulse is that. And that's the reason why I like to think about it as what is most commonly said and done. Because to me, it's more useful to see that it's the American culture's urge, not so much the individual in Jill Biden in this instance. What I'm trying to talk about is how when you are socialized in the United States, what you are most commonly encouraged to say and do will be whatever it is that reminds black people, especially of their proper place. It is simply not the case that you're supposed to be on top. So I always need to remind you of your proper place. Mm. Um. Here's here's, here's a a, a broad question, uh, and I'm happy to go wherever you want to take it, Dr. Mitchell. But to to what extent, um, and I could give any number, a a litany of examples, uh, as as could you, um, that uh, mirror the question I want to ask now about these two women, uh, namely uh, the white uh, Caitlin Clark uh, and the African-American Angel Reese. To what extent have these two women once again, these two women, become symbols of a much larger divide in this country? Oh, that's a beautiful question because there's so much there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that you're right to say that it's useful to think about how they become symbols mm-hmm. because, again, it's a spectator sport. And the way that we're all socialized is to um, think in terms of protagonists and antagonists. In this case, the heroine of the story and the person who would foil the heroine. So again, because we're all socialized in this American structure that has made our heroes straight white men by and large, then when we approach stories, whenever we're confronted with a story, and that's what we're confronted with when we're doing spectator sports, Mm -hmm. a, a story with passion, with competition, with victory and defeat, right? Mm. We all get caught up in that narrative flow. And that's the reason I think it's so important for us to think in terms of discourses and practices. So yes, absolutely. We want to think in terms of symbols. So the reason why you are valid in thinking about Caitlin Clark as a symbol is because in American culture, white women have been made to symbolize innocence. They are made to symbolize Uh, a need of protection. This is how we have, as one violent example, lynching narratives, right? You paint black men as natural rapists, and so you have to protect white women from them. So much of American history is about that narrative. And of course, that is top of mind for me because I study lynching. But the the point here is that white women in U.S. culture are supposed to represent innocence, need of protection. They're also supposed to represent kind of the ideal mother that should have the room to nurture the nation. And if they 
are allowed to nurture the nation, then the nation will go in the right direction. Because, you know, sometimes white men can be ruled too much by their greed for power and money. And so white women are there to temper them and to help them to think about other issues. Yeah. On the other side, American culture has made black women to resemble everything that could be the downfall of civilization, that they are not at all innocent, certainly not in need of protection. And this is the reason why it's so easy to masculinize them and say that they are aggressive and hostile and all of those kinds of things. And black women have been made to symbolize everything negative, whether we're talking in terms of um, white men claiming in early decades, well, let me be specific, white men claiming in the um, slavery era that black women are temptresses, and so to the extent that they've created a whole race of mixed-race babies, it's because black women are just so licentious that they were temptresses. And then after slavery, black women continue to be cast as um, you know, loose, and it's impossible to rape them. And so this is the reason why black men are so attracted to white women, because their women are not, you know, virginal and all of this kind of stuff. And then, of course, the other thing we get into is the idea that black women are supposed to represent bad motherhood mm -hmm. and welfare queens and all of that. So at the end of the day, those symbols are never far behind when Americans are watching um, any drama play out. Mm -hmm. And all of us have been given the idea that it is likely that the um, bad character here is going to be the black one. The good character here is going to be the white one. If we just want to take it to the most basic level, yeah. that's part of what you always have to be on guard for with anyone who has been socialized in the United States because we've all been given that message of white is right, black is going to be bad and evil. So again, in case you're just tuning in, we're talking about uh, all the brouhaha that has erupted um, given uh, First Lady uh, Jill Biden's invitation and now walked back. Uh, of Iowa, the the defeated Iowa, the losers, uh, Iowa, in the national women's championship game against LSU, uh, who obviously uh, were the victors. As the clock wound down to the end of the game on Sunday, LSU's Angel Reese began to celebrate the win, repeatedly pointing to her ring finger and mimicking Iowa guard Caitlin Clark, the white woman here, uh, uh, mimicking her you-can't-see-me gesture, a gesture that Clark herself had used and directed toward players from Louisville in Iowa's prior game. So Reese was doing the same thing that Clark had done, but 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 Reese gets uh, just uh, demonized for this. Uh, you heard Dr. Mitchell suggest earlier uh, that Keith Oberman, uh, and I know Keith, Keith just lost his mind. So this is family radio, and I got, I got, I got to clean this up, and my mama's listening. But Keith Oberman, sports commentator, widely known, uh, called Reese an effing idiot. Clean that up for radio. An effing idiot. And Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy called Reese a classless piece of S. A classless piece of S. I raised that uh, because, not to raise the hair on the back of your neck, but I raised that because, Dr. Mitchell, this isn't just sports commentary. This isn't just a critique. Uh, by media personalities, this is this is <laughs> um, th these are fighting words, as we say in the neighborhood, right? Um, but but mm -hmm. but these white male commentators just went in 
on Angel Reese with that kind of language. So I'm asking you with three minutes before news, traffic, and sports, pardon the pun, um, uh, we'll do it <laughs> and we'll continue on the other side here, of course. But what's your critique of the media and the way the media handled or mishandled this? You've already critiqued white men, and these, of course, are two white men. But give me a broad critique of the way the media handled this story or not. Absolutely. I mean, what's so important about that question is that the media is in the business of telling stories. And so if the media doesn't have the critical thinking to recognize when they are falling in the trap of the easy symbols of white, good, black, bad, then we're in trouble. Mm. And that's how we get more and more of these stories that basically suggest that the white is always moral and the black is always immoral. You do the exact same thing, but somehow it's praiseworthy or not worthy of comment when it's white person doing it. And when it's a black person, all of a sudden it's the evidence of just how immoral and ridiculous they are. If the media can't have that awareness and they often don't, then we're in trouble and we get more of these horrible stories of making people villains who simply are not villains. Mm -hmm. How are black people to process um, that what comes out of this uh, to a large degree um, is that continuing narrative that that black players, male or female, are too hood, uh, too ghetto, and in this case, too unladylike, whatever that means? Absolutely. I think we all need to be on guard for the ways that we also fall into those traps. Mm -hmm. The idea that her lashes and her hair automatically makes her hood or something like we need to be careful of when we're falling into those traps, too, because mm -hmm. the truth is it's the same narrative and the same assumptions about what's good and bad. The truth is, let somebody's character actually be the thing that represents. But when we're not staying focused, we actually substitute those things for character. Mm. We are talking with uh, award-winning author, historian, and cultural critic, Dr. Caritha Mitchell, who's a professor of English at, let me get, let me get this right so I don't get cussed out, the Ohio State University. You can't, you can't say, I'm, I'm a product of the Big Ten. I went to Indiana University, but you can't say Ohio State these days without saying the Ohio State University, lest you get uh, blessed out. Uh, so uh, that's where she teaches, right? <laughs> and we're delighted to have her on as we continue our conversation uh, about uh, the drama of the comments made by First Lady Joe Biden uh, inviting the loser Iowa to the White House alongside the winner LSU in the Women's National Championship this past Sunday night. Again, the First Lady has walked those comments back, um, but uh, as I said also, earlier the damage was done and there's a great deal more i want to uh, to unpack here when we come forward after news traffic and sports and, and dr mitchell of course is an author of a number of texts and there are a couple texts that she's written that i i think i want to uh, probe as well because i think i can make a good link uh, well she can i know i can i can tee it up but i think there's a good link between a couple of books she's written and what we're talking about right now we'll do all that in a moment on kbla talk 15 uh, i'm tabby smiley she's dr caritha mitchell uh she is a uh, historian and cultural critic, uh, English professor at The Ohio State University. And we're continuing our conversation now in case you've just tuned in about all the drama, the brouhaha that erupted um, uh, a couple of days ago uh, after <laughs> First Lady Jill Biden uh, extended initially an invitation to the losers, Iowa, in the national championship game uh, to uh, attend, uh, uh, to appear at the White House alongside the winners of the national championship game, LSU, uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. And uh, it kicked up a major conversation in this country about a variety of things. Uh, and we've been talking with Dr. Mitchell about that in this hour. Um, Dr. Mitchell, what do you make right quick here of 
of Caitlin Clark going all in, essentially defending Angel Reese in this so-called taunting controversy. You heard our sports guy, Ray Richardson, say moments ago that she was on ESPN yesterday uh, with Jeremy Schapp. Uh, and again, she couldn't have been more, 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 uh, more gracious, uh, could not have been more clear in her defense of Angel Reese's right. Uh, to talk trash. She does it. Everybody does it in sports. Uh, certainly men do it. Um, so I thought yesterday her tone was, was, was pretty spot on. As I said earlier, her coach has even uh, you know made comments about it. But what do you make of the fact that in this particular instance, where oftentimes we see people not wanting to, uh, to say or do the right thing, not wanting to back up, as it were, the, the, the young white female player, Caitlin Clark, her white coach have said and done the right things, even as these white male idiots, I mean, these white male sportscasters uh, <laughs> continue to, to drive their particular narrative. What do you make of the way the player at the center of this has responded? I was not surprised at all because, as I said, I initially thought to myself, you know what, she's trash-talking this team in the exact same way she mm -hmm. would a majority white team. I knew it from the very beginning, so I wasn't surprised that she came out and did that, and it's just more confirmation that these are women, these are young girls who respect the game and respect each other and so it was a reminder to all of us as spectators how much we're showing our mess when we have the kinds of responses that we do because at the end of the day it's about thinking that there is supposed to be um a white hero or heroine all of us have been taught that story and the reactions that people had were just going along with this idea that the true victor the true heroine should have been the white woman and she never declared that she's a real one who respects competition and she understands sometimes you win sometimes you lose so i wasn't surprised to see it but you're right so often white people are encouraged to hold themselves to really low standards especially when other people are coming out as if they were wronged and so there are a lot of people who would have gone along with that and not come out and defended angel reese in the way that she did so to me it was just more confirmation that caitlin clark is a competitor with respect for the game mm -hmm. how do you respond to people um who feel that uh, this false equivalency as i put it uh, that came out of the first lady's mouth, this cognitive dissonance. It seems to me uh, that she didn't process fast enough. Um, essentially is disrespecting her husband's, make that Joe Biden, of course, his most important constituency, the constituency that got him elected president, uh, certainly uh, black women. Uh, if, if, if black women don't come out for Joe Biden, he ain't the president, uh, starting with South Carolina and beyond. And here, ironically, you have the first lady stepping into a, a situation and a controversy where black women are at the center of it. And yet she wouldn't be in the White House with her husband were it not for these black women. So there are a lot of people that are just disappointed uh, in believing that that she disrespected his relationship, his legacy with an all important constituency. There's a lot there. But how did you read that to the extent you did it all? Oh, my God, that's such a powerful question that brings in so many issues. And I think for me, the way that I would approach it is that it's a reminder to us that people are individuals. And just because you are married to someone doesn't make you automatically some kind of unit. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, to my mind, it's a reminder that as she felt herself as the 
person who is identifying with Caitlin Clark in this dramatic series in which she just knew she was going to be victorious and then had that victory snatched from her. That's the narrative she's in. And it has nothing to do with her husband because mm-hmm. if nothing else, it's the time when she gets to feel like she is identifying with the protagonist of the story when usually he's the protagonist of the story. I mean, if you really want me to go there, part of what I'll say is think about the fact that she is a Ph.D., Mm-hmm. Right. So she is a whole individual with a Ph.D. who often needs to subordinate herself to her husband and his agenda because that is her role as first lady. So this is just a reminder that regardless of these roles, we're talking about individuals. I definitely get the critique that people are offering in terms of black women being a constituency that got Biden into the White House. But if we're going to do all of that blurring, then we need to just focus on the fact then that her misstep didn't mess up the fact that he's going to stay with what he's supposed to do, which is have the champions come if they want to come. Mm -hmm. So if we want to blend all this stuff together, then we are forced to deal with the fact that his authority is the one that will actually have the real effect. But you're also right that there is a certain amount of damage done with the fact that she even said it, right? Because to your point, it's about that symbolism, and none of us can ignore the symbolism, especially when we're reading this important text of spectator sports. Yep. Let me swing all the way out now, <laughs> all the way, and, and ask you how you'd respond to people who are saying this is much ado about nothing and that Dr. Mitchell and Tavis are wasting a good hour of talk time on <laughs> KBLA right about now. That, 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 oh, that, 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 we're, that we're putting too much on this thing. Oh, yeah. People love to be dismissive when there is actual rigor put on the experiences that we're all having. Mm. We're just supposed to react to it. Mm. We're not supposed to actually think about why we're having the response we're having, right? So I would say that when I talk about the American way, that's another one of the American ways of actually downplaying the critical thinking that we should be placing in our everyday experiences. Because to my mind, what's important about understanding the discourses and practices that most shape our society is that it will always reveal something to you about power dynamics. And so in this situation, part of what it reveals is the way that black and white women athletes are actually not always in their so-called proper place simply by the fact that they are athletes in the public eye. So there's a certain kind of discomfort that people are dealing with when they watch women's sports, whenever they pay attention to it at all. But there's a certain kind of discomfort when they actually pay attention to it that has to do with them not being used to women being protagonists. Mm -hmm. We are used to men being protagonists. So one of the things that the question about what's frivolous and what's not brings to mind for me is the way that American culture, because it's a patriarchal sexist culture, it loves to say that women and whenever women come up, that it's frivolous and gossipy. But my question would be, what is more gossip driven than sports journalism around football and men's basketball. (laughs) What is more gossip-driven than that? (laughs) But because it deals with men, 
it automatically has a gravity to it that everyone acknowledges. But if you start talking about women, it automatically becomes more frivolous. Yeah. So that is what I would say. Nope. And you said it. And you said it loud and clear. And <laughs> we all heard it. Uh, <laughs> when we come forward, as I said moments ago, I'm going to get to this now. Um, she's written a number of texts, um, but there's one in particular that I want to ask her about. And I'm going to see how good she really is. I, as you can tell, she's pretty good at what she does. I want to see how really good she is because I'm going to ask her to weave two things together that I think she can do. But we're going to test her. Uh, we, we, we're going to test the professor instead of her testing us, the students, uh, in just a moment here. Her most recent book is called, speaking of the White House, her most recent book is titled From Slave Cabins to the White House. Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture. I love the title. From Slave Cabins to the White House. Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture. Uh, when we come forward, I'll let her tell you what the book is about. But I think there's a dialectic here. I think there's a way to weave what we're talking about uh, and connect it uh, to what she wrote in her book. At first glance, it might not seem relatable, but I think she sees exactly what I think she can unpack for us. We will see together when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. It's, uh, it's titled From Slave Cabins to the White House. How ironic is that? Here we are talking about an invitation uh, now walked back to the White House, uh, extended by Jill Biden to the Iowa uh, women's basketball team. Um, but the book is called From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture. Uh, I'll let Dr. Mitchell tell you briefly what the book is about, and then we're going to see how good she is to weave what she covers in that text <laughs> to what we've been covering in this hour. Dr. Mitchell, take it away and impress us all. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, I wrote From Slave Cabins to the White House because writing my first book, Living with Lynching, taught me that you are not attacked as a black person because you were a criminal. More often than not, you were attacked because you were successful. I was studying lynching and studying plays about lynching in that first book. Mm -hmm. So when I left that book and understood that black people understood that they were attacked for their success, not because they were criminals, I had to say to myself, well, what does that mean for how we engage with black literature and culture? And to, to my mind, what it meant that we had to do is we needed to not assume that black literature was written primarily to protest. We needed to watch how it was talking about black people's success and how the violence they experience is just coming to interrupt that success. Mm. So when I say that I'm studying homemade citizenship in African-American culture, what I'm defining homemade citizenship as is this deep sense of success and belonging that does not rely on mainstream recognition or civic inclusion. Yes. Because like I said, black people knew that their success beckoned the mob. Mm. If their success beckoned the mob, then they clearly were not doing what they were doing to prove to white people, maybe if I behave perfectly, maybe you won't attack me. No, they understood that it was behaving perfectly that got them attacked. Mm. So mm -hmm. my job in this book is to trace what does it mean to take black success seriously from slave cabins to the White House. And what I find is that when you pay attention to success and not just protest, what you see over and over is that black authors, 
are showing that they are debating in their community how to define success. Because how can you keep pursuing success unless you define it and debate how to define it? Because if your every version of success is going to get you attacked, then to keep pursuing it means that you've got to keep redefining it. And that's what I trace from slave cabins to the White House. Mm. Two words. Mic drop. Uh, our remaining moments with Dr. Mitchell when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. Dr. Mitchell, it seems to me uh, that sports um, always seem to give us a way in to these uh, national conversations. Uh, uh, from O.J. Simpson to Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark and everything in between, every other day it seems, uh, there's some national conversation that we have around the issues that sport bring to the fore. It is the reason that Stephen A. Smith is the highest paid <laughs> talent on yeah. ESPN. He's made a, he's, 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 Stephen's my boy, but he's, uh, he's made a name for himself, uh, weaving uh, uh, the conversation of sport to the political, social, economic, and cultural issues Uh, of our day, of our time. And so sports always gives us a way into having these conversations. Having said that, it seems to me that when all is said and done, typically more has been said than done. Uh, And and I'm curious as to whether or not you think there are some takeaways from this particular, uh, this latest iteration uh, of a national conversation born of what happened uh, in this case on a basketball floor. Wow. What a powerful question. I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is the way that all of us can be um, active participants, not just spectators. Mm. And so I think that part of what is so useful about the fact that in this situation, Caitlin Clark stayed true to her respect for the game and her opponents Despite, as you said, there is often a temptation to go into, oh, well, since I'm getting all of this support, let me lean into that. Mm -hmm. That is a tempting thing. And the fact that she didn't do it, I think, is a good example of how we can all not let ourselves be taken away by the symbolism and the tired tropes that actually just replicate the injustices that we see in our society. Because the reason why sports brings all these things to the fore is because it is created by the culture. And so very often the way that we're responding simply reinforces the injustice that's already there. So this is an example of how we can be more critical of how we're taking on that symbolism and maybe um, push back some and actually be more robust and rigorous in how we're dealing with this. And I think she, in her doing that, you know, kind of gave us a way of seeing that. And of course, Angel Reese did too, by being clear about her own um, value and victory and not letting herself be diminished by the American tendency to diminish black women. Mm. I was about to close by asking you uh, what your uh, what your view is uh, in the final uh, of Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark without even prompting you. You just gave me that answer. What you think of Angel <laughs> Reese and what you think of Caitlin Clark. Uh, let me close by asking this question then. Um, what do you think this has done for or not for 
women's sports, for women's college basketball, because they're all we, we could have a, we, we could have a whole other conversation about the ways in which the the, the sport uh, the sports that women play are diminished and disrespected, disregarded uh, by a whole swath of the American public, including the media. Uh, but very quickly here, in a minute and a half to go, what do you think this does or does not do for women's sports, particularly for women's college basketball? I am very optimistic that the attention that they have drawn will have a lasting impact. And it's partly, again, because of the powerful stories that have been told around it. We all have some kind of investment in the story and have been swept up Mm -hmm. in the story in ways that are going to keep us more engaged. And the truth is, because women are constantly not given the same kind of resources and benefits that men are given, they are by and large going to be exceptional at what they're doing. So when we actually pay attention, we're going to be drawn by their excellence. So I'm actually really optimistic that this will have a lingering effect. The more attention they get, the more we will respect what they've been doing all along while we've been ignoring it. Mm. Uh, we'll close on that note. Dr. Caritha Mitchell is an award-winning author, historian, cultural critic, and English professor at The Ohio State University. What a delight to have had her on for the hour uh, discussing uh, the topic that everybody's talking about in the world of sports. Uh, but I think now we have some greater insights thanks to her presence on this program. Dr. Mitchell, good to have you on. We'll do it again somewhere down the road. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. It was an absolute honor to have a smiley. Thank you very much, Dr. Caritha Mitchell. I appreciate you. That's our program for today. Time now to make room for the KBLA Midday Money Chain. Up next, the Millionaire's Roundtable with Lynn Richardson to be followed by Ahead of the Crypto Curve with Naja Roberts. Old money, new money. Either way, we got you covered here on KBLA Talk 1580. Thanks for tuning in today to all three hours of our program. Until tomorrow morning, Lord willing, thanks for uh, listening. And as always...